Last week, we had the wonderful privilege of hearing insights on Exodus 16 from the foremost commentator ever to have interpreted the Word of God. Listen to how this expert of exegeting Scripture explained the importance of Yahweh providing manna to the children of Israel in the midst of a barren desert. He said, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus, this foremost exegete of Scripture of all time, said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life, and I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. If spent three quarters of an hour going over Exodus 17. If you really want to understand it, go to John chapter 6 and read what Jesus said. He pulled that directly from the history of the people of God in Exodus and exegeted that I am this bread that was given to you. Another prominent biblical interpreter will connect us this morning, I hope, if I'm going to try uh, to show this. And I'm not the prominent biblical interpreter I'm talking about here. But he will connect us from Yahweh's next miracle in this desolate wilderness of sin in Exodus 17. And he will connect us to the central hero of the New Testament, Jesus Christ. In Exodus chapter 17, 1 through 7, Yahweh, Israel's God, leads them into a waterless wasteland where they thirst greatly and fear desperately. They first blame Moses, and then they threaten to execute him. In response, the Lord, Yahweh, number one, goes before Moses to the rock. Secondly, he calls Moses into position. Thirdly, he establishes witnesses of what he will do. And then, fourthly, he uses Moses. He uses Moses, his representative, to supply sorely needed water to his rebellious children. Oh, what a great great Savior we keep seeing here in Exodus, pouring out patience and undeserved grace upon His people. And oh, the destructive power of discontentment and lack of faith. With dangerous attitudes, words, and actions, they almost destroy the very moment the Lord has designed to show His deep love for them. May God teach us this morning as we look at this chapter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice and we give thanks that you have given us your Son, Jesus Christ, and that you have given to us your indwelling, our indwelling Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord God. And Father, we thank you for the Word, and we ask that your Spirit would 
enlighten us, illumine it to us, that we could see you, that we would know you. Lord, that we would see ourselves as a mirror of the word of God. And that all these things would work in our lives to conform us, to, to mold us into the image of Jesus Christ. That Christ would be shown in this city, in this, in this state, by the people that are gathered here this morning and many others that love and follow you. But this morning, teach us and prepare us, Lord, equip us to show the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. We begin with this first portion of Exodus 17 when sometimes we are the enemy. And they come to Moses and he said, we are thirsty, we are mad, and it is your fault. Verse 1 says, then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of Zin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. That environment in the wilderness of Zin is extremely hostile for a human being. It is described as a dry, sandy wasteland. It's entirely different, completely different than the lush green meadows of Goshen, Israel's home for the past few centuries. That Nile Delta in the northern portion of Egypt was ideal grazing and farmland. The wilderness of Zin is hard. It is desolate. And it's beginning to crush Israel. Verse 1 tells us something that, Hebrew, that the Hebrew people seem to have already forgotten. That is, they had come here at Yahweh's command. It was his pillar of cloud and fire that they had followed. The mood there at Rephidim is ugly. Verse 2 says, Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? Is this a new experience for Israel? If you've been here the last few Sundays, you realize it's not new at all. Exodus chapter 15, two chapters earlier, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Slightly different, they had water, but it might have been worse. They could see it, but they couldn't drink it. How did they respond? Well, the next verse says, So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? But the word used this morning in chapter 17, verse 2, is translated as contended or chided. And it is evidence that this time the Israelites rose to a much higher level of hostility against Moses. Translations include they strove, they quarreled. Contended can also be translated as a legal lawsuit. Moses is under even greater attack now by the children of Israel. And we saw Moses' response. Has he ever responded like this? Well, it's much the same as last week when they griped at him because they didn't have enough food. In Exodus 16, Moses responds to their complaints and he says, Well, what are we, me and Aaron, that you grumble against us? And then the next verse, And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. This reply, as you can imagine, did not pacify the angry mob. Things quickly escalate in verse 3. Tensions shoot up with accusations of genocide against Moses and threats by Israel to now execute him. Verse 3, and the people thirsted there for water. Then the people complained against Moses and said, 
Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? When suddenly confronted with danger, disappointment, and uncertainty, Israel, like many of us, Israel, like many of us, commonly search for someone to blame. It's my boss's fault. Ah, it's my sister. Ah, it's my parents' fault. My spouse. It's, it's my church. It's my school. It's my coach's fault that we're in this mess. And that's the reason I'm like this. And once we pin the blame on someone, you know what usually happens? We need to attach a blame. Some kind of a motive. Something like, well, he's just jealous. Or he doesn't want me to succeed. He doesn't like my looks or my color or my culture or my religion or my family or my music or my tattoo or my bald head or whatever it might be. The Israelites have decided this deadly drought is Moses' fault and he has done it to kill us. Now Moses' future looks pretty shaky at this point. And it's not the first time Israel has leveled these absurd charges against him. It may have been only a week earlier, maybe less. On the way from Elim to the wilderness of Zin, they had charged Moses saying, you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then it was hunger, now it's thirst. The accusation is that Moses led us into this wasteland, waterless desert of death. But what did we see in verse 1? It clearly states Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out according to the commandment of the Lord. In fact, Moses would have had to have been a miraculous salesman in order to coax the children of Israel to follow him rather than the massive pillar of fire and cloud. Clearly Moses didn't lead them here. Yahweh did. But now they find themselves in a position of great need and no obvious and no easy solution. Is this Yahweh or not? Did God's GPS map not get updated? Did he forget that humans need water to survive? Did he not know that the desert is dry as a bone? King David tells us in Psalm 23 that Yahweh the Lord places us in green grassy meadows. And he places us beside calm, cool waters. But David also describes how the Lord sometimes walks us through the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes he serves up dinner surrounded by enemies who would like to kill us. The heroes of the faith, the heroes of the faith that we read about in in Hebrews 11 and, and throughout the scriptures, They didn't become renowned because they sat with lemonade sipping underneath a shade tree in green pastures. No, they became heroes of faith because the Lord brought them miraculously through the valley of the shadow of death. They trusted in Yahweh when they were thrown into the lion's den or into a white-hot blast furnace or they faced genocide of their entire race, or some dreaded king was willing to threaten and try to destroy them. Uh, Starvation, torture. Those moments on the edge of disaster 
Brothers and sisters, they were not accidents. They were arenas. They were arenas designed by Yahweh to glorify his name before the world and to increase the faith of his children. I'm afraid that many of us have run off this stage because of the scary props and the, the scary storyline. And we run off just before we had the opportunity to see the Lord save the day. Don't be afraid of the circumstances, though they may be scary, though they may seem hopeless. We see Israel again and again and again in Exodus coming to these walls with no escape. But they were the walls that God had set for them so that he could demonstrate his faithfulness and love to them. You see, Moses in this moment is jarred by the rage of the two million people. 600,000 men, if you want to go with that number. Was it terrifying? The number of men alone would have been a mob more than the entire population of this city. What do you do when a half a million people want to stone you to death? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. There is understandable tension in Moses at that moment. But at least, at least he knows where to go with his fear and frustration. When the Lord's plan for us seems hopeless, he tells us in Psalm 23 that he is with you. He will protect. He will guide you. He will comfort you. In the midst of this intense turmoil, two very different responses emerge. The first, the people grumble. They hate and they accuse. Moses prays, albeit quite desperately, he prays to Yahweh. Moses' example, we need to cultivate. We need to cultivate that in our very own lives. <clears throat> it almost seems like a reflex for Moses as we read about him. Something that just it naturally happens. But it didn't. We saw in the early days when he was called, he didn't even want to follow God out of that desert to Egypt. But now we read here and we read in Exodus 15. So the people grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord. Numbers 11, 2. The people therefore cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord. Numbers 12, 13. Moses cried out to the Lord. May that be the reflex action for us. At every moment when we're faced against these walls that seem to be hopelessly trapping us, may our first reflex action be crying out to the Lord. And what does he do? What do I do with these people? We don't have to cry out with some sort of sophisticated, uh, beautiful kind of prayer. We cry out with complete dependence like Moses do. What do I do in this situation, Lord? Spell it out to them. They're about ready to stone me. They're about ready to fire me. They're about ready to do this or that or whatever. But cry out to the Lord. Leave it to him. Don't grumble. Don't accuse and don't hate. And Yahweh listened as Moses cried. In verse 5 we see, And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. And also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Well, look at this plan. Really, there's four parts there that God gives us. Yahweh tells Moses, march on. Step up. 
demonstrate that someone in this two million people believes in me. Go on before the people. Secondly, assemble the witnesses. These witnesses will verify what I will do. Take the elders of Israel. Thirdly, use that same tool, Moses. Use that same tool I've used in the past. Take your rod. And fourthly, move. Go. Go. Verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Yahweh was there in that trial. He always is. It's as if he's saying, listen, Moses, I will be on that rock with you. You are not alone. I'll be there, in fact, before you ever arrive. I'm going before you, and I will be with you to the end. Joshua 1, verse 9. The Lord says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Deuteronomy 31, verse 8. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Psalm 46, verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. Jeremiah 1, verse 8. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you. Brian, Matt, Olivia, Tom, I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. But if we look at this, I want to suggest that the actual miracle of the rock in a desert that gave water almost comes across as a non-event. Without any great flourish or pizzazz, it simply reads, and Moses did so. From the rock pours enough water to satisfy the thirst of over two million people and their livestock. And I don't know how much more that would be. I could ask several of our farmers and probably had a good estimate. But the livestock drink a whole lot more water than the people do. So if you've got two million people, let's say they drank a half gallon each. That's going to be a million gallons, I guess. And you multiply that two or three times, times what the, the livestock would drink. You're talking about three or four million gallons of water. You would need, basing it on one calculation, you would need a large rail car of over a hundred tankers to bring that much water in. You'd need a line of about 500 truck tankers, like the ones you see on the highway that carry milk or, or fuel. That's a lot of water. But it's a non-event because the one who supplied well over two or three million gallons of water from a rock in the desert did what? He created out of nothing the oceans and rivers and lakes that cover 70% of the surface of this planet. NASA estimate that to be 310 quintillion gallons of water. Anybody have any idea how many zeros are behind quintillion? It's not as, thankfully our budget isn't in that kind of shape, <laughs> our deficit, but it's 18 zeros, 310 quintillion. Of that 310 quintillion, they say that only about a half to 1% is actual drinkable and accessible. A lot of it is frozen in icebergs, a lot of it is not drinkable. But 1% of 310 quintillion is still 
3.1 quintillion, plenty of water. If Moses had, or if the Lord had desired, he could have drowned Israel in the water if he had chosen. The water was really nothing to Yahweh. The hearts of his children were the issue. And once again, the grace of God. In the face of faithless fear and fierceness against his man Moses, Yahweh does what? He, he doesn't rain down fire upon them. He pours out on his children what they did not deserve. Through this gift of water in the desert, he once more demonstrated his overflowing grace. The water, though, only represented something far more necessary for life than H2O. The rock in the wilderness of Zin and the water that spewed forth were a picture from God. They were what we've called many times now a type and shadow of a future spring, a spring of living water. Paul referred to this moment of the Exodus when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, and all drank the same spiritual drink, drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them that rock was Christ. Christ was there. John 4, verse 10, Jesus answered and said to the woman at the well, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. A few verses later, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. John 7. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And Revelations 21 verse 6. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water, of the water of life. Without cost. It is yours. Now, at the conclusion of this account, we see that the place sadly was remembered more for the contentious hearts of the people than for the Lord's faithful grace. Verse 7 says, So he called the name of the place Massa and Mirabah because of the contention of the children of Israel. And because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? A fellow by the name of Riken gives a summation of Israel's heart here. And he does it in 3D, 3Ds. Israel demanded God's provision. They did not ask for it. They did not wait for water. They demanded it. Secondly, they denied God's protection. While their stated target was Moses, their actual accusation was truly against God. And thirdly, they, did, they doubted God's presence. That last question, is the Lord among us or not? Seems odd to hear them ask this question. We see Yahweh's clear presence with them. It's there in that pillar of cloud and fire constantly. It's been there in what he has done to save them and protect them and guide them over and over. And Yahweh agrees that there is no excuse for their refusal to trust. In Psalm 105, the moment is remembered this way. The people asked, and he brought quail, and satisfied them with bread of heaven. And he opened the rock, and water gushed out, and it ran in the dry places like a river. 
And then in Psalm 95, verse 8, he warns, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in that wilderness, where when your fathers tested me, they tried me. They saw my works for 40 years. I was grieved with that generation, and I said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. But once again, Yahweh demonstrates that he gives his grace to man. And he chooses, not because man has earned his favor, but because he is a gracious God. Now, we come to a very sharp turn in the pathway to the promised land for the people of Israel. On their road to Canaan, they have been following Yahweh's pillar of fire and cloud. Following the redemption of, cho- of the children of Israel out of slavery, their immediate hardships have been self-inflicted. They've continued to doubt Yahweh. They've accused Moses. And this has led to regular crises, just constantly. But because of His grace, Yahweh repeatedly loved and restored His people. But now, in verse 8, stalking up from behind preying on their weakness and vulnerability, an outside force ambushes. This is when we battle the enemy from outside. The Amalekite ambush, verse 8. Now, Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. The Amalekites. They were a people named after their forefather, Amalek. He was a grandson of Esau. Esau, if we remember from Genesis was the rejected son of Isaac and the arch rival of Jacob. The Amalekites were a nomadic people. They roamed the wilderness desert where the children of Israel were now traveling. This attack doesn't have the clarity here that it does in Deuteronomy 25. In Deuteronomy 25, we see how wicked this was. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear flanks, or rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and you were weary, and he did not fear God. It was an unprovoked and cowardly assault. The terrorists targeted the weak and the exhausted. And this was also the first outside military attack against Israel since their ex- exodus from Egypt. In fact, it was the first national military attack ever. A response was demanded. Verse 9. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him, and he fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. In answer to this terrorist attack, Moses places a young man at that moment named Hosea into the role of military commander. This is the first time his name is mentioned in Scripture. Hosea, we will know later, he will be named Joshua by Moses in Numbers chapter 13. He's named Joshua along with, as he goes with the other 11 spies, to to search out the land of Canaan, the land of promise. And so it was when Moses held up his hand in verse 11 that Israel prevailed And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. 
And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. As we look at this, it's not explicitly stated that Moses prayed from his position on the hill. But what is absolutely clear, what is crystal clear, is that as one pastor wrote, Moses' actions Action was an unmistakable sign of dependence upon God alone to win the battle. Moses maintained, for as long as his strength allowed, a common posture of prayer, standing with his hands lifted toward God. It's seen in Exodus chapter 9. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord, and the thunder will cease. And there will be no more hail. So that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20. We read of Jehoshaphat. He stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem. In the house of the Lord before the new court. And said, O Lord God of our fathers. Are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kings of the nations. In your hands are power and might. So that none is able to withstand you. He stood there in the assembly. Psalm 63, 4. So I will bless you as long as I live. In, the name I will, in your name I will lift up my hands. When we traveled to Ukraine several years ago, one of the things that was so consistently obvious was when they prayed, they all stood. Out of reverence for God, probably out of tradition somewhat. But when we prayed, everybody was on their feet. I think that probably is common in a lot of different cultures. I'm not saying that we have to do that. I'm not saying that we have to take on traditional forms necessarily. But that's what they did much of the time when they prayed. And we see Moses standing there on the top of the hill with his hands lifted to God. Now at the meantime, it says in verse 13, that Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So Joshua and his troops fought the battle. But their success depended upon Moses' prayer to Yahweh. Effective prayer is effective because it is an act of dependence upon God. It is an admission of our own inability and our complete dependence upon the Lord. Such a spirit, I believe, is reflected clearly when Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, my and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly glory in my infirmities, my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you see that was happening to Moses? We see him there, and he is a weak man. He is an older man, and they set him on a stone finally. And then they have to prop up his arms. He was a weak man. But this realization leads to prayerful living. When we are admittedly weak, our dependence is upon God. In such conditions, he alone is glorified as he sovereignly moves. It's not about praying long, or how often you pray. Or how emotionally you pray. It's about praying in complete dependence upon God. For the glory of God in everything. In this historical account on the hill at Rephidim. Moses was too weak really to physically pray. But his prayer was to one who is never weak and knows our hearts. Calvin commented. 
that even though Moses prayed, he could not boastfully commend his own zeal in praying, but as rather the public witness and proclaimer of his weakness, that the glory might be entirely attributed to the gratuitous favor of God. Paul gives the essentials for spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. He closes his wartime instructions saying, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me. That utterance, utterance may give, be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. That in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Those were all a conglomeration of prayer requests. Pray these things without ceasing fully, completely, constantly. Prayer is life for a Christian. Does that challenge you? It does me. Is prayer life for Kent? I hope it is growing in that way. And I hope it is for you as well. Then the Lord said to Moses in verse 14, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner, Yahweh Nisi. Military units, professional sports teams, universities, nations, we all have banners that we fly and that we look to. They give a central focus of unity and strength and inspiration. Christ Jesus is our banner. Christ Jesus is our banner. The Lord Yahweh is our banner. King David wrote in Psalm 60, You have given a banner to those who fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth. Isaiah declared in Isaiah chapter 11, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, that was Christ eventually, it was David and then on to Christ, who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. And the final verse says, For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now that last verse, admittedly, is difficult to interpret. And if you have different translations and we pooled them all together, you would see quite different uh, translations of what is said there. I'm going to leave a general summary of it in the hands of one of the commentators that's helped me much with this chapter. And he said this, The Amal Amalekites were fighting against God, whether this is what verse 16 says or not, and God promised vengeance against them, whether or not he, God, actually lifted his hand to swear an oath to that effect. Because it can be looked at different ways here. For his part, Moses lifted his hands up to God's throne in prayer. Whatever words he used by lifting his rod, he was asking for divine intervention. He was appealing to God in a gesture of total dependence upon his power. The kind of dependence that we express today through power. Excuse me, through prayer. Now, I want to close with a couple of things here. There's a powerful picture painted in this episode of this battle. And I really thank one of the commentators for, for displaying this. He said, the Amalekite battle here, or I'm saying this, the Amalekite battle 
is a metaphor of the Christian life. I want you to listen to the insights of this writer. To see how this relates to our own spiritual experience, remember that the Israelites were already saved. They had been delivered from their bondage back at the sea. On that occasion, they had not taken up arms against oppressors. This was because they had someone to fight for them. So Moses had given them these orders, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. Yahweh will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The God of Israel won their salvation all by Himself, as He always does. But once they have been saved and brought out of Egypt, saved exclusively, entirely, fully by Yahweh, there will become battles. And there will be things we have to face. Charles Spurgeon elaborated. He said, The children of Israel were not under the power of Amalek. They were free men. And so we are not under the power of sin any longer. The yoke of sin has been broken by God's grace from off our necks. And now we have to fight, not as slaves against a master, but as free men against a foe. Think about that. Many of us who, who are struggling against sins that we cannot seem to get out from under. The yoke of sin has been broken by God's grace from off our necks, and now we fight not as slaves against a master, but as free men against a foe. Moses never said to the children of Israel while they were in Egypt, go fight with Pharaoh, not at all. It is God's work to bring us out of us out of Egypt and make us his people but when we are delivered from bondage although it is God's work to help us we must be active in our cause not that we are alive from the excuse me now that we are alive from the dead we must wrestle with principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness if we are to overcome end quote Paul the apostle concluded in Colossians 2 he says, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. That's, that's the glorious good news. When you repent and trust in Christ, they are completely paid for. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, trying, uh, triumphing, triumphing, triumphing <laughs> over them in it. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Our Lord, our Yahweh, graciously cares for his children. Whether it is in the midst of our own internal doubts, our fears, our selfish demands, or whether we are in danger from attack by rulers, authorities, principalities, and spiritual forces that want to destroy us. The Lord is faithful from the beginning and gratefully praised in the end. I want to give four crucial armaments needed for victory in this war raging around us. Armaments because they are used in battle, Armaments, because all four of them start with R. First, remember. Remember this warning. 
taken from Psalms and quoted by the writer of Hebrews. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years, remember and beware of the destruction of a hard heart of unbelief. Secondly, rejoice. Rejoice in God's gracious gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. He is an unending spring of living water for all who have repented from sin and trusted in Him for eternal life. Thirdly, recognize. Recognize that the war for your souls has been won by the Master Savior, Jesus Christ. Recognize that. And fourthly, Rely on Christ Jesus. Rely on Him in constant dependent prayer. Constant dependent prayer for victories in the ongoing battles, both for your life, for this church, and for Christ's church around the world. I wanted to share a couple of examples of prayer in closing. One of them is just very brief. Um, Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, a missionary to China. That man brought thousands of missionaries to China, probably resulting in in the conversion and the salvation of millions of Chinese brothers and sisters. That man came to Christ on the very day that his mother and sister were moved to join together in prayer until they felt God had moved. And he was saved that day. Now I understand, some of you are saying, I've prayed for my, my, my brother, I've prayed for my son or daughter every day. And it has not happened. I have too. I know that. But the answer for us is prayer. We bring them to prayer. Bring them to God in prayer. We will not stop. Some of you have prayed for, for decades. Do not stop. We want God's glory, and that will come. I don't know how he will answer it. I can't even guarantee that it will be through salvation. But that is where we go. I wanted to just briefly share with you a story. A faithful sister in the church here in the assembly passed this book on to my wife in the last few weeks. It's a book entitled Adrift by J.H. Hunter. It's a story about a missionary husband and wife, George and Ethel Bell. They served Christ together on the continent of Africa. Adrift is an amazing account of the faithfulness of God and the powerful importance of prayer. You see, while back on furlough in their home country of Canada, the husband, George, was killed in an auto accident. And I'm just giving you bits and pieces of this. Ethel and her two young children returned to serve Christ in Africa. A few years later, June 16, 1942, Ethel and her daughter, 14-year-old Mary, and her son, 11-year-old Robert, left their missionary station on the Ivory Coast of Africa on furlough, returning to Canada. They had lost their father in a previous furlough. Now they were coming back again. The cargo ship that they were on board was torpedoed in the middle of the ocean. Many of the passengers were killed and all of the lifeboats were destroyed or badly damaged. However, in God's providence, 
Ethel and her children were placed on a small eight-foot by ten-foot life raft with 16 other people. Imagine how small that is. Eight by ten, 16 people. There, or 19 total. There they remained adrift at sea for 19 days. I want to go from page 10. Cold and heat, hunger and thirst, hope and despair were their daily portion. Great seas battered their frail craft, and hungry sharks, a bare 12 inches away, were their constant companions. After three weeks, such clothes as they had were in rags. Their feet were swollen to twice normal size, until they looked as though their owners had elephantiasis. While feet and legs were covered with painful salt water sores. They were weary from lack of sleep. And at last, when rescue was near, death at the hands of those friends, though through a ghastly air, almost overtook them all. That it did not do so was a miracle. But then it was all miracle from beginning to end. Eventually, they were rescued. Two of the 19 on the raft actually died at sea. And even the rescue almost ended disaster as they were at first shot upon by the military boat that would eventually rescue them. But the thrust of the boat as it, excuse me, the thrust of the book as it closes is not on the courage and endurance of Bethel and those who survived. In the closing paragraphs, I want to read this to you. You cannot tell what power or influence your prayers may be exercising or in what strange ways God may be working in lands far away or in other lives in answer to your intercessions. We have proved that to be true in our own experience as it has been proved in the lives of others. Let the atheist laugh with a skeptic sneer. It is still gloriously true that more things are wrought by power, excuse me, more things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. I would often say to the children, such and such a group is having its prayer meeting now. In memory, we would turn back on Wednesdays to our church at, in the Ivory Coast where we knew the missionaries and the native Christians would be praying for us on our safe, for a safe journey. Though they literally, little realized how great was our need of their prayers. Such thoughts and recollections never failed to uplift and encourage us. Since coming home, we have received from friends many letters that confirm this conviction. If such confirmation were needed, that God heard and answered prayer. A few of these I would like to quote. Quote, you will probably never learn of the many people who have prayed for you during your years of service in Africa, and especially during the last few weeks. Little did I think when in our September meeting I made requests for prayer on your safe journey that I should learn the next day of your safe arrival in Barbados. From the time we knew you were coming home, we began praying for your safety and protection. The peculiar thing, or wonderful thing, is that previous to reading about your experience, I had a definite burden for you for the past several weeks. I always pray for you and the children, but somehow for a time it was different. Then when I read in the papers about your experience, I knew why. And then a cousin in Toronto also wrote to her saying, for months, I have had such a burden of prayer for you. End quote. These, it seems, were storing up prayers that afterward was answered during the days of our desperate need. I set these down as an encouragement to further prayer 
on the part of those in the homelands who are holding the cords for missionaries in the distant places of earth. Pray, pray, pray. We little realize, realize the power of this mighty weapon that God has placed in our hands. Pray, pray, pray. We talk about Peter and Christina. Who knows what is happening there or what attempts are being made on them. I read several stories in preparing this about amazing interventions of Christ in the lives of people that were being threatened or held hostage or were almost attacked and people were praying for them at that very moment stateside. When somebody comes to your mind, pray. Take the prayer list we have here, please, and put it up on your fridge and pray for those missionaries regularly and then pray for each family. For you do not know many of the burdens that are being carried by each one of us here. Pray, pray, pray. Put that to work. We, I would say this last Wednesday, we had one of our most enjoyable and or meaningful prayer nights we've ever had on a Wednesday night. So much thanksgiving and praise and so much supplication for each other. Many people participating. It, was, I, it just seemed like the Lord was blessing that time. Let us become deeper and more firmly committed and constantly praying as the people of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we, we all would answer the question, have you been praying, by saying, not as much as I should. Lord, please move us to be people that are constantly in prayer, crying out to you at, at a moment of danger or fear or, or disappointment, crying out to you in moments of joy and success and fulfillment, constantly speaking to you, Lord, and relying upon you. Lord, face us with the utter inability and weakness that we truly are that we would cry out to you and lean on you fully. We need you, Lord. Show us that we need you so that we'd be constantly crying out and seeing you move so that God would receive the glory. Please be glorified. Father, we are a, a, a very unusual crew mixed together here from all different walks of life, different practices, jobs, ages, uh, colors, styles. But you are our king. And we are your people. Lord, use this body of Christ to glorify your name. In your name we pray. Amen.